Welcome everybody to the Master Investors Podcast. My name's James Faulkner and I'm here with John Cornford. John, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm okay so far today, thanks. Good stuff. Um, we're here to talk about the small cap mining sector, um, but before we kick off, just um, for the benefit of our listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with you, can you just give them a bit of a, a, a flavour as to your, your background and what your career's been in investing? Well, um, I've been in uh, probably one of the longest in the tooth analysts in the city now. <laughs> um, I, ca I came in in the 1970s, um, having had a 10-year career in fairly high-level defense engineering, um, where I'd had to have pretty high-level engineering qualifications, and ended up in my last job as a project manager, spending in today's terms about $100 million a year, I suppose. But anyway, for family reasons, I had to leave that job, and I then went to business school. Uh, and uh, because I'd become rather interested in the problems of managing big projects, uh, in any case, uh, so I went to business school, studied all that, and with the intention of going into management consulting after that. Um, uh, as it happened, I did some fairly interesting projects while I was at business school. Um, just uh, various uh, problems concerning long-term management planning. For uh, uh, one was the, uh, the um, subsidiary of a of a FTSE 100 uh, defence-related electronics company. Uh, one was a small company uh, making luxury uh, um, uh, boats and and stuff and one was a subsidiary of another um, FTSE company um, but uh, after that it turned out that that particular year there was no recruiting whatsoever into management consulting profession so I ended up uh, as a second choice in the city uh, where I thought there ought to be um, a requirement for people who knew something about companies or were willing to learn about them helping to channel investors' money into the most effective companies. That, of course, has always been the theory about the city, but um, like a lot of theories, it's not like that at all <laughs> in practice. Um, however, so I arrived in the city and joined, joined a pretty prestigious, very large broker um, who had recently, or at least in the last few years, started up an equity research department, having made all this money in the gilts market up to then. Because up to that point, people probably don't know these days and forgot, forget these days, most institutional investment was in government stocks and bonds. Uh, equity shares were regarded as um, secondary. Yeah. And the... the, the um, the um, the fashion for investing in equity shares only start only took off round about that time. Um, so the net result was that there was no there was very little of what you might call proper research in the city. Um, in this very large firm, research consisted of analysts analysts yes specialising in particular sectors, and I specialised in engineering of all types. Um, and, and presumably, John, that's set you in good stead when it comes to analysing um, mining companies because these are quite um, engineering-heavy 
um, companies, aren't they? I mean, taking a project from you know inception to um, fruition is quite a challenging task, isn't it? So uh, presumably that gave you a quite a unique insight into that aspect of the mining sector. Absolutely. And uh, my engineering background had, had been in a sector where you had to be right. You couldn't make guesses as people did in the city. Uh, and one of the things I learned as soon as I got into the city was that most people there seemed to have extremely short memories. <laughs> um, they didn't seem to remember what they had been recommending last week. Um, <laughs> Um, in, other, in other words, it was all everything. Fund managers ra ran on gossip and rumour, and um, a lot of them used to were called in the trade. They were called um, gunslingers. Um, <laughs> in other words, they they didn't rely on proper research at all. Uh, anyway, that was that was the case in um, the uh, in most sectors of the market when I was there, very slowly over the next 10 years or so, um, the uh, quality of research did improve quite a bit in the city. Um, but you still had, um, but you still had a situation where fund managers didn't really pay an analyst for, for um, anything but short term trading ideas. And what I've the major thing that I have discovered in my city career is that nobody pays anybody or any analyst for um, what you might call objective research. Mm. In other words, everybody in the chain is in it for their money. Um, brokers don't. You've all heard the old the old saw about. Um, um, a big Wall Street broker showing uh, a potential client his yacht, and the client and the client saying, "But, but where are your clients' yachts?" Um, <laughs> yeah. And of course, of course, there weren't any. There aren't any. <laughs> the, the brokers made vast amounts of money, um, basically, uh, either these short-term trading ideas, or in the case of their official house stocks. Um, they were there to to sell those stocks to investors uh, and to fund managers. They weren't there to advise the fund managers which stocks to buy or whether there might be a snag in in the companies that they're trying to sell them. Um, and miners are really very similar. Mm. Um, they will tell investors that oh, we're all in the same boat. We uh, we are interests are aligned with yours. In fact, they're not, um, especially the sort of uh, miners that I look at who are not just small ones, but medium-sized, what, what might be called um, early-stage miners. They want, they want investors' money. And, of course, they will tell you any tale in order to get it, um, just as their brokers will, um, just as the presentation platforms that they pay to make presentations to investors also want they want uh, the money from their client uh, pre presenters they they don't earn any money from the people out in the audience so their interests are not to satisfy the people out in the audience with correct objective opinions about their shares 
help out and, the shares that they're pushing. And I suppose, John, with the, um, the, the small cap mining sector, the, um, you know, the opportunity to sort of pull the wool over investors' eyes is, is even greater than, um, than it is in the rest of the, the stock market, isn't it? Because it's such a, um, a technical area. And unless you're a, you know, you've got a background in, in that, you know, that industry, it's going to be quite difficult for most investors to reach a kind of, you know, to attain a, a level of understanding that actually sets them in good stead. When it comes to um, to picking stocks, is that would you say that's, that's right? Um, um, absolutely, yes, that, that's absolutely the case. Um, but on the other uh, side of the coin, it's, I, it's an area where you know, so if you do get it right, the returns can be extraordinary, can't they? So, so what, there again, that exactly. That's that's why I had I had spent an awful lot of my time up to about fifteen years ago, not only in various sectors, but in various roles in the market. Um, I spent some time in corporate finance, taking a few companies to the market. Um, I spent uh, quite a lot of time in a fund manager, um, a big insurance company fund management department, because at that stage, some broker had suggested I, I ought to run my own fund management company. So I, I went into that in order to get to know the market, only to run into the start of tremendous amount of regulation, which meant that somebody like me had no chance of running my own um, pension fund management company. But it, I learned an awful lot uh, about how how those uh, large uh, institutional investors view uh, broker research. And uh, I saw uh, they would tend, unless there was a very good, um, succinct, um, reason on the front page of a broker report, it would go straight into the bin. Um, because, you know, th- th- such was their, their, um, uh, such was their opinion of, of most broker research. And I think that is still the case today. Um, but uh, anyway, what I'm, what I mean is, um, I, I also spent a long time, uh, editing, what used to be a very well-regarded newsletter, the Investor Stock Market Weekly, uh, which had been going since the war, and had been run by the fan- owned by the Financial Times for a long time, until my particular small research company bought it, and I edited that for about seven or eight years. Um, so, my my interests began to turn to those of private investors. In other words, investors not not in institutions, but those who weren't very well uh, supplied with, with, as you say, informative research about, about shares. And that after that stretch, where, of course, I covered a large part of the market, I came to the conclusion that um, because my real interest, basically because I was once upon a last time an engineer, my real interest was in the quality of the research and the accuracy of research into more and more complicated companies, and none could be more complicated than um, than mining. <laughs> and I started, so I started um, concentrating on mining about nineteen, about two thousand and five. But since then, I can't, I can't claim to be an expert in the whole mining sector because I tend to go by what I think are interesting-looking 
companies where I think the research is wanting in one way or another. Mm. And I've tended to concentrate on those sorts of companies. And of course, because if they're not very well researched, getting it right is, as you say, um, uh, gives you scope for really much better returns mm. than you would get in, in any other sector of the market. So you can sum up the attractions of the um, mining sector by saying that you get 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 the timing of the commodities markets right, and then look at miners in very great detail. And if you get that right, then there's scope for much more returns than anywhere else. Um, I could uh, I came to fail to understand why my fellow analysts back back then stayed stuck into one particular market sector for years and years and years. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't understand it, except by realizing that in those days, they all got paid vast amounts of money by the (laughs) the brokers who didn't never take the slightest notice of their recommendations, but they they paid their commissions to the brokers so that there could be somebody there who they thought would be some sort of specialist who could answer their questions when they wanted them. And that really was the basis on which analysts used to earn vast salaries back then. It's all completely changed now, of course. Uh, Regulation has completely wrecked the market for research. Analysts are fewer and fewer and farther routine. The only ones that that really uh, are relied upon to... um, produce objective research, you will find they are in the inside the institution investors themselves, not monitoring and looking at yep. and assessing whatever broker research comes across their desk. So, of course, investors outside those, in, those major in investment companies don't get to see any of the, the proper research that the what you, what you might call the buy side analysts mm-hmm. look for inside a, a major institution. So, and if you like, that's been another one of my, my interests has been trying to plug that gap. Not that I've had much success because nobody pays you to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, if we, if we um, accept that, you know, most of this broker research and um, the stuff that comes out of the various research houses um, needs to be taken with a, a, a healthy pinch of salt, um, how, how do uh, private yeah. investors go about analyzing these companies then given that the um the the information is is so sparse well of course they have to start by getting to know the companies um by all means go along to these uh, presentations uh, which are uh, they're very informative when i want to get when i want to know a company i will go along to a presentation to start with um uh, and gather as much information about it as possible realizing that you won't be given the warts and all. You won't. The, the, uh, entrepreneurs who run these companies, they've got to be uh, over-optimistic, otherwise they wouldn't be doing it. Um, so, and, uh, so obviously, um, you've got to realize that they are biased and, um, who, and, and they're not going to emphasize the fact, first of all, for a mining company, that they're going to want your money at various stages along the way, um, that the share price probably won't reflect their hopes for what it will be eventually. In other words, 
uh, the money they want from you, they might be raising from you at lower and lower prices as time goes on. And that's a good point, Until isn't it? That... A lot of private investors in, in these small cap miners end up they, they, they end up being hooked in by the, the promise of, you know, riches to come, but then they see the shares continually falling on the back of, you know, placing after placing after placing. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, right. how, how does... How, how do how does an investor make sure that they well, they get in at the right point and and make sure that they they avoid avoid all that dilution to come then? Well, um, there is of course a, um, a standard theory about the uh, performance of a typical early stage startup mining company. He uh, when he st- if he's an exp- exploration company, he'll start uh, with a couple of bill results. Um, and and uh, from a very small cap market cap base, if if those drill results look um, attractive, you'll suddenly, a, a bit like Greatland Gold uh, and recently Orosur Gold, mm. um, that will start a um, that will start a sort of momentum among private investors who will just think to themselves, um, goodness me, this could turn into a bonanza. Um, and that, of course, is self-perpetuating. It will create us for for some time. It will create a momentum of its own. More and more people will be drawn in, um, and and so you get to a stage where miners like that, or early stage miners like that, get to be far too expensive. Uh, the market will suddenly realise that, and we'll have a stampede to sell, to sell off. Mm again, uh, when it becomes obvious that uh, maybe there's an awful lot of gold or zinc or copper in the ground, but it's going to take a lot of money to develop it and get it out. And that, and that of course, is the next stage of a mining, typical mining share, where it will sink right back again, just as Sol, Sol Gold, for example, has done. Yeah. Um, while people worry about how it's going to be funded and what and what the value will be once it is funded and, and finally in operation. Bearing in mind, of course, that the, that the timeline from striking uh, a bit of gold in the ground and actually starting to produce it is more than 10 years, probably. Mm. And what oh. investor is going to hang around for that length of time? <laughs> this is kind They're of going where, to take uh... their money and run when, it, when, it, you know, when, it, when they've got some money to run with. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And this is kind of where where um, the terms MPV and IIR come in, isn't it, um, John? Because um, and you, you've spoken about these quite often in your your column, haven't you? That you know investors often look at the things like the MPV and take that as um, a, a good indication of the value that's um, out there when it's it might not necessarily be. Um, well, that's that's absolutely correct. People, uh, analysts, and companies sometimes in in talking to investors will use an NPV because for a, a mining project where you you've got to spend an awful lot of money to start with, and then the money you get in might be fairly erratic after that. There's no there's no sort of conceivable way uh, an investor can think of. How do we value this? Applying a PE ratio doesn't work, simply because in, for most mining projects, there's probably not, not more than 10 years of life in them. 
and the PE doesn't doesn't work in that regard. Looking at um, uh, a dividend that they might get. Similarly, I mean, you, you can't rate a company on the basis of its dividend if the dividend isn't going to last very long. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the the only way that you that approaches um, a, a, a thumb in the air idea of value is to use an MPV. But the trouble and just is, just to be clear, sorry, would, N- just for the listeners that aren't aware, NPV is uh, referring to net present. Well, it value. means, yeah, it means the net present value. What it is, if you like, very simply, it is, it is the eventual profits that you will get from that particular project. Um, minus the initial capital cost to develop it. Um, but because those are all spread over a number of years, you have to discount um, uh, whatever you're paying out and whatever you're going to get back by some discount rate um, over, over each year of the, the life of the mine. And in that way, you add up if you like, the discounted profit, shall we say, in year five, which is discounted at 5% a year, means it's you only take half of it or whatever it is. Uh, you add all those up and you arrive at, hey-ho, this is the net present value of that particular project. But the snag with that is that um, the only net present values that are usually available to analysts are the ones that are worked out by the mining consultants who work out a complete plan for the investment um, uh, and the um, and the expect their expectations for uh, the royal for the, the revenues and therefore the profit going into the future uh, those those calculations are made at the level of the project um, they're not made at the level of the company or the company's shares. Um, in other words, another thing that, of course, um, uh, inexperienced investors in mining don't realize is that the project is separate from the company, uh, simply because the project has to be financed by other people than themselves. If a company has enough money to start with to... Um, Invest in a new project and then and then return and then receive all the returns. Yes, the net present value belongs to the company and therefore it belongs to its shareholders. But if you're going to have to finance the capital cost of that project through bringing other people in, they're going to take away a lot of the returns from the project and you will you will be left with a residue yeah. the residue is not the, the residue is not the same as what the consultants will have worked out for the project as a whole yeah uh, so, so, so the bottom analysts, line the, the, the net present value doesn't take into account the the dilution that might have to take effect to get that project up and running basically Absolutely, yeah. and the dilution, of course, can take uh, take various forms. It's either a, a project a banker lending lending you a project loan, or it might be another investor coming in and farm what we call farming in, yeah. or it might be your own shares having to be issued uh, in order to f- fund it, and therefore dilu- diluting its value per share as time goes on and as more and more money is raised. And some 
research analysts are good at doing that, and they're honest about it. They try to work out uh, the full um, the uh, the full um, what it means to a company's shares to to fully fund the project, and therefore what is left at the end after yeah. after everybody has taken their cut. Uh, now then, that is the only honest way, in my view, of um, uh, of uh, projecting a, uh, a mining uh, forecasts to, full of sacred investors. Yeah. Um, but a lot of but but most of them are too sh- they're too lazy, in my view. They will they will take the so-called NPV produced by a consultant. They will sometimes say, oh well, we'll discount it for the for the need to finance it and for the risks, and we'll take a show. We'll discount the NPV by 50%, and there you are. That's our target price for the shares, um, which, of course, itself raises questions. Um, first of all, what do you mean by target price? Do you mean that's the price the shares will reach one day? Well, um, it, they won't. They won't ever reach a, a target because who's going to buy a share right up to a target? <laughs> and therefore, therefore, how is the share price going to get to the target? Um, the second thing is, even when you work out an NPV, you don't pay the NPV to buy to buy it, do you? If you want to make a profit, you want to <laughs> buy the you want to buy the project that is giving you that NP. BV at a discount to the NPV because you want to make a profit as time goes on. What a t- an NPV is measuring is the value now of all the future income, which is the same as, a, as an annuity. You could you could pay for an annuity now, and you will get back your money over, shall we say, ten years plus the discount rate. So who on, it uh, also sort of matters a, quite a lot what discount rate the analyst uses. Well, again. It? Again, the, uh, again, you can bump up the apparent NPV by using a low discount rate. Um, and the discount rate, in theory, ought to be the cost of money to the um, owner of the project. Um, and, and in the case of a, an equity company, then it's usually worked out as you know the, the cost of the cost of, to them of equity and the yeah. cost of borrowing. Um, that is the discount rate you should be using in order to ha- have a fair uh, view of the value to you of that project's NPV. But as I say, um, even if you've worked all that out correctly um, and you've got a fair, uh, fair enough discount rate, uh, you're still faced with the question of, you don't actually buy that. You don't pay that that NPV to buy the project. Otherwise, you're a complete fool. You're all you're doing is getting your money back plus the discount rate, as if you were an, an annuity investor. And an annuity investor would never invest in a mining share anyway because it's so unreliable. And what so, about the internal rate of return? Everything is fraught with problems. Well, now well, then, an internal rate of return is a different. It's a completely an internal rate of return. It's a completely different uh, matter to an NPV. The, it, uh, the the internal rate of return, if you like, is the is the rate of return on the initial investment of all the subsequent 
income. That is not affected by any sort of discount rate. It is it is worked out as the actual level, uh, like any investment. You put a yeah, hundred quid in today. Exactly. Five years time, you get two hundred pounds back. What is yeah. the in What is the internal rate of return? That doesn't vary at all. That that is a measure that in, that that companies should really rely on, and they always do rely on this, because that gives you a true measure of the value of the project. And John, when, when investors are evaluating a, a mining company, how, how, should they, how should they look at the internal rate of return set against the net present value? How, what, what's the significant well, not, relationship of those two? There isn't, well, there isn't, there isn't a relationship between the two. They are two completely different um, they are two completely different measures that come out of the flow of cash, if you like, uh, the flow of cash. Of, but in terms of an investor, you know, when they come to evaluate um, a mining investment, what what should they be looking for when they look at those two numbers? Well, the the invest, the, the internal rate of return is is a measure that that loan providers will look for. Because a bank will probably perhaps lend you a project loan at, shall we say, 10% a year over, shall we say, 10 years. Um, if, if, it, if it's faced with a project that wants its money and it has an internal rate of return of 20% over that time, the bank will know that um, it, it is covered, um, provided that, I, I, that internal rate of return is met. The bank knows it will get its money back. Um, it, a, a NPV won't tell him that at all, um, because an NPV, is, uh, it, first of all, it depends on the discount rate. But not only that, but an NPV doesn't tell you anything about the time scale, or, except that by way of the discount rate, it, tell, it doesn't tell you when you're going to get your money back, whereas an IRR does. Um, uh, uh, one thing that you, you know, that again, investors probably don't realise is that you can get the same NPV from two totally different flows of cash and two completely different IRRs. So you, you, an NPV only gives you a tiny, tiny bit of the whole picture, is what yeah. I mean. And yeah. yet, and yet, most analysts, most brokers, will push the NPV as the be all and end all of uh, the value of whatever mining share they're, they're they're pushing you into. So that is where good quality research can be separated from bad quality research. Right. Um, but and but as you said earlier, um, there are so many factors involved in in a mining uh, project um, and in a mine itself. Such as the the, the such as the grade of the ore, such as the um, uh, the well the the the, the initial capital spend, mm. um, uh, so many of these that um, uh, uh, mining companies are are uh, tempted to list them all in in order of merit, if you like, and show themselves up against other miners in some sort of uh, better light 
which again it depends on which particular measures you use and there yeah, are so yeah. many measures that you can pick and choose sometimes the measure that will show you is a much better value than somebody else while conveniently forgetting other measures which might show the opposite what about the different milestones in a, in the life cycle of a, a mining project, John? How should investors understand, you know, like the key the key points such as, you know, like the preliminary economic assessment and definitive uh, feasibility study and all these different, um, you know, different um, parts of a, a project's um, life cycle? What, well, what's the significance well, of those? Which ones should investors really be? You know, well, the, these are these are sort of a regulatory requirement, if you like. Um, there are uh, there are standards to which um, mining projects and um, and, uh, and owners have to have to have to meet in order to um, uh, to publicise or to publish details about their projects. And um, the, uh, there are preliminary economic analyses, there are preliminary feasibility uh, uh, analyses, there are all the way up to what is called a, a bankable feasibility study, which is the most detailed and the most accurate. And uh, of course, these can take an awfully long time and cost a tremendous amount of money to produce. But they are the only um, means by which um, potential investors can, can, can monitor, if you like, the progress of a miner towards eventual production and eventual value. If you like, um, these these types of reports are getting you closer and closer to a proper estimate of the costs and the final profitability of the, of a project. Um, and in order to understand uh, everything involved, it's it's always a good idea to thoroughly read one of these. A report. They can run to two or three hundred pages of very detailed technical uh, information, and I get the impression that a awful lot of brokers don't read them. Um, <laughs> you, well, you do, uh, there again, it's where a bit of an engineering or technical background or a numerate background helps you. Um, so they are extremely important, but but uh, there again, sometimes need to be taken with a pinch of salt because even even a bankable feasibility study is not considered to be better than 10% accurate either way. So that means that um, brokers who who puff a share, quoting an NPV taken from a, a, um, a consultant's uh, NPV report, and then quotes a share target to within two decimal points, which I see some analysts do, is, <laughs> showing, is showing you that he doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, John, when we when we sort of um, you know get further along in the sort of the, the life cycle, when when a when a company's looking to you know maybe find a finance partner, a joint venture partner, or even you know sell the project in its entirety, what what factors might stand out? Do you think to um, to make a company attractive in that sense? Well, there again. Um... I said that getting these various feasibility studies was um, a step along the way to discovering the real value, but at the but, but, but at the end of the day, it is how it is going to be financed that um, enables you to work out who gets what slice of the um, returns, if you like, including the, the shareholders who are at the bottom of the pile. 
uh, and that is uh, what is known as um, financial close. And this is when everybody concerned, all all the all the all the all the lenders, all the participants, uh, all the um, builders, the the plant, uh, the the mine uh, constructors, have put in all their quotes. The insurance companies, the 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 um, the, uh, the guarantees from the local governments usually are required. When these are all uh, put in together, and the whole jigsaw of the financing is complete, then you can work out every, everybody's value. Not really before that can a can a, uh, a shareholder really understand what he's going to get at the end of the day. Provided it all works out as planned, of course, which it often doesn't either. <laughs> so up to that point, it really is kind of, it's it's just as much as an art as it is a science, isn't it, valuing these companies? Uh, very much so. Uh, there again, simply because um, you often find that, that depending on the level of ignorance about the project out there in the market or among analysts or whatever, and including the company itself, um, you will find a share price doesn't really reflect the reality. Um, and so um, uh, the art is to, uh, is to time your analysis of the company and your recommendation in, in some way when the share has got the wrong momentum either way, if you like, remembering that it's the momentum that has driven it, and it might depend on a lot of ignorance. Your your input is to try and find a place where you can say they're all wrong, uh, and this is what the uh, value should be. Um, and then it, uh, it will take some time for that to percolate through to the market when they realise that they are wrong and you are right, by which time things might have moved on. <laughs> So that's where the art comes. <laughs> and what about management? It's why I never claim to be <laughs> oh, management. Well, no, sorry, management in any say, company. Because yeah. we always talk about management yeah, um, having skin in the game, don't we? And that, you know, if, if management are aligned with shareholder interests, that's always a, a good thing, isn't it? But um, when we come to mining companies, we often find that, you know, management might have a decent shareholding, but they might also have a ton of warrants and options. So, You've got to dig a little deeper, haven't you, when it comes to making sure that management's interests are completely aligned with shareholders. Absolutely. And of course, uh, in an early stage company, there often are lots of warrants and options. Um, And uh, you could say that if if management has got warrants, then they've not put any of their money in, have they? Um, But if they've got some shares from the very beginning, yes, they have put their own money in. So you've got to you've got to differentiate between uh, the skin that um, management might have put into the game at the very beginning, and what they might continue to put in, in uh, and not necessarily by way of just collecting warrants. Um, no, the, the thing about management is that uh, managers for any company in any field, as I say, um, uh, they're, they're optimistic. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing the job. Um, but at the same time, um, the, the, a sensible investor will always look back four or five years at, at all the company's statements 
and the chairman's statements and the chief executive officer's reports and so on and so forth and see what they were saying then and whether they have subsequently achieved what they were promising. Very often, I think you'll find newcomers and many analysts, they'll only read the latest report and accounts, which, of course, is the latest uh, bit of, uh, of optimism from the management um, who have forgotten to tell you that their optimism five years ago was somewhat misplaced. So in order to get a grip on how good the management are or how honest they are, uh, just read, go back and read at least starting five years ago every single announcement they've made and every single report and accounts they've written and just see how they, how they come out of that. Might take you some time, but it'll give you a tremendous insight into the company yeah. and the quality of its management. Okay, thanks very much for your time today, John. It's been a great discussion. Um, just to uh, remind everybody that you can read John's column at masterinvestor.co.uk, and that's out every fortnight. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye.